0: Okay, Second Kings nine. If you haven't already turned there, but I must warn you about the message tonight. The passage we're about to read contains and study contains violence. It does. There's much bloodshed in this section, this chapter, also the next chapter. But it's the blood of people who are shed who support a regime who is which is wicked and evil. They have shed blood. They've killed the the, the blood. They've killed the Lord's prophets. Genesis 9.6 says, whoever sheds man, man's blood by man shows blood be shed, because man was made in the image of God. You don't go around killing people. God has laws against such things. Now, in our society, we've learned to tolerate crime, right? We tolerate criminals. We tolerate crime. We treat them nicely. You have to be nice to the criminals, right? That's what we do in our society. They commit crimes. They get arrested. They spend a certain amount of time in a detention facility, and then they are released back on the street, only to commit another crime. This happens all the time. We call that the revolving door of justice. They enter the door of justice, and then they exit soon thereafter to continue their life of crime. That's how we do it here. Uh, they usually get a slap on the wrist. They're told not to mis- misbehave anymore, and then they go back to the life of crime. That's the American system of justice in action, by the way. I don't have to tell you that. You hear that every day in the newspaper, in the uh, on the, on the uh, computer or wherever you get your news from, radio. So why am I bringing this up? Well, in, in this chapter, in the next couple chapters, there's another system of justice we're going to be talking about, only this one gets real results. People aren't slapped on the wrist. They don't get away with their evil. They, uh, they're not just told to mis- misbehave anymore because the judge and the jury, in this case, this system, don't, they don't work that way. People get their just deserts. I'm talking about the Lord's system of law and order. This system is different from the American system of law and order. He's a merciful judge, definitely. He is merciful to those who repent and want to get right with him and turn to him. He will forgive them, only they'll pay, for their, they'll pay the consequences for what they've done still. But those who refuse to honor the judge and the jury or even for, you know, bother to show up at the court date, he's not, gonna, he's not going to let them slide on these things like our system of justice would do. He's not going to let that go by. He's not going to be mocked. The house of Ahab has a long rap sheet. In fact, there are basically Ahab and Jezebel, and that crowd are career criminals. They do things that are evil in the sight of the Lord. They commit crimes against the Lord. They commit crimes against his people. They kill the Lord's people. They think they're going to get away with it, but they will not. Why? Because, as we're going to find out tonight, there's a new sheriff in town. And this guy is a gunslinger for sure. He's not going to he's going to shoot to kill this guy is. He doesn't mess around. We're going to find out who that is momentarily. Now, in order to really understand this passage in Second Kings, first of all I'll turn to First Kings. Go back with me if you went to First Kings chapter 9, 19 rather. First Kings 19. We have to go back because something took place back then that's been I've been waiting for it to unfold since that time. It's starting to unfold. It's starting to unfold in chapter 8 of 2 Kings, by the way. 1 Kings 19.15. The Lord is giving instructions to Elijah, J-A-H, not Elisha. Elijah back there. And look at verse 15, 1 Kings 19.15. The Lord said to Elijah, Go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you have arrived, you shall anoint Hazael king over Aram, and Jehu the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel, Meholah, you shall anoint his prophet in your place. It shall come about, the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael, Jehu, shall put to death. The one who escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha, Elisha, shall put to death. So there's three people mentioned here. These people the Lord will use as instruments of judgment upon the nation of Israel. Hazael, Jehu, and Elisha. The first of these instruments is Hazael. We saw that last week in 2 Kings chapter 8. Elisha tells Hazael, you're going to be the king of Aram, the nation just north of Israel, king of Syria or Aram, same thing. You're going to be the king of that nation. And he started to weep, the prophet did. And Hazael says, why are you weeping? And he says, because I know the evil you're going to do. I know you're going to wield the sword against my people, Israel. And you're going to do a lot of horrible things and commit murder and death and mayhem. But that was all a part of God's judgment on Israel for sinning against him. And so that would happen. Now let me skip Jehu in this passage for a minute, the second instrument of judgment, and go to the third instrument of judgment, Elisha. It says here, uh, whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha will kill. Now Hazael and Jehu are going to be kings. They're going to use the sword, actual swords. But then it says, if someone escapes from those guys, Elisha, the prophet, will kill them. Well, I don't see Elisha going around killing people with an actual sword. In these passages we've been reading. But Hosea 6.5 says something very interesting. The Lord says there, therefore I have slain them, I have slain Israel and Judah by the prophets, it says. I've slain them by the prophets uh, because it says there, um, I have slain them by the words of my mouth. In other words, the word of God is slain people. He's He is getting his word out to them and, and they are being slain by that, Elisha slew people by the, word, by the weapon of the word of God that came out of his mouth. That's the judgment that he used. Remember in 2 Kings chapter 2, he pronounced judgment on these you know, these gangbangers that came out, these hoodlums that came out. That I don't think they were small children in 2 Kings 2, by the way, innocent children. I think these guys were teenagers bent on trying to get him, trying to take him out. And so he called out, he cursed them with his mouth, by the word of the Lord, cursed them. And forty-two she bears come out of the forest and kill them. Second Kings two. So he was the third instrument of judgment. Elisha was. But the sec- our focus tonight is on the second instrument of judgment, that is Jehu. All that follows in Second Kings chapter 9 and chapter 10 is a result of this prophecy found in First Kings nineteen. Two main points tonight we're going to look at. Number one, Jehu, the appointed executioner, and number two, Jehu's executions. Let's first of all look at Jehu, the appointed executioner. And that is found, Stephen already read it for us, in verses 1 to 13. And from our reading, I hope you were listening to that reading. From our reading, we find out that the appointed executioner is Jehu. Look at verses 1 to 3. We'll read a few of these verses. Elisha the prophet called one of the sons of the prophets and said to him, Gird up your loins and take this flask of oil in your hand and go to Ramoth-Gilead. When you arrive there, search out Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat son of Nimshi, and go in and bid him rise from among his brothers and bring him to an inner room, then take the flask of oil and pour it on his head and say, Thus says the Lord, I have anointed you king over Israel. Then open the door and flee and do not wait. I'll, I'll, this is Jehu who's going to be the executioner. He's going to be God's hit man, if, if you will. He's going to be the assassin who renders serious judgment on the house of Ahab. That's why I am rightfully calling him the executioner the appointed executioner of God, and uh, you're going to soon find out he's going to live up to his title, and I get a sneaking suspicion from reading these chapters that he enjoys his job as the executioner. You'll see that. Now, you're going to notice it's not Elisha who anoints Jehu. Elisha's the guy, logically, you would think, would anoint Jehu to be the king. He doesn't do that. He gets somebody else to do that. You remember they got that school of the prophets, the place where they train the young prophets to be be older (laughs) prophets and to to be prophets one day. Well, he, he gets one of these guys to do this job. Now, why does he do it himself? Well, verse 3, <coughs> Elisha tells the prophet in training here that uh, once he is anointed Jehu, he says, open the door, as soon as he's made this anointing, anointing him as king, open the door and, and, don't, and flee. Don't wait around, get out of there quickly. Why does he say that? Because what is happening here is they are staging a coup against the government of Israel. They're toppling, they're overthrowing, It's a government takeover, is what it is. They're getting rid of one king. There's already a king in Israel in charge. His name is Joram. Only he's the son of Ahab. And God has said, I want to judge the house of Ahab. There's a king in charge, but Jehu's going to be the new king. And in this situation of a takeover, you don't want to be dilly-dallying around. Okay? You want to get the job done and get it done quickly. Now, if Elisha himself had been involved, then... His presence would have been too conspicuous. People would have wondered, what's he doing here? What's going on here anyway? So he sends this young prophet in training anonymously to carry out the mission. Now, that's a dangerous mission. Very dangerous. You have to commend the student prophet for his role in all this, by the way. Now, I don't know of any, any seminary in America where part of the theological training is to get one of the prophets, one of the young preachers, and say, hey, I want you to topple a government for me. That doesn't really happen. If Elisha would have showed up, it would have been very conspicuous. Suspicions would have been raised. So he sends this anonymous young prophet to carry out the mission. got to commend him for that. That leads us to a question. Who is really behind this coup, this government takeover? The Lord is, right? The Lord is the one who is staging the coup here. He is the one who wants Jehu anointed as king. Does that mean the Lord endorses overthrowing governments all over the world? No, it does not mean that. It doesn't mean that, but this is the government of Israel. They are his covenant people. You see, this is different. And so led by Ahab all these years, his covenant people have, has been rejecting the Lord. They've been committing idolatry. They've been doing horrible things. They've turned to idols. They're guilty of murder. So the Lord is starting to bring judgment on his nation. We said the theme of Second Kings is the decline and fall of Israel. That's what's happening. They're falling now, and you're going to see this continue throughout the book until they totally fall. And so God starts bringing this judgment. So this young prophet walks into a room with all these officers in the army of Israel, and he singles out Jehu with a personal message for him. And this has happened in other times in the Bible, in the Old Testament, where God told a prophet, I want you to go to anoint so-and-so to be king. And he went and anointed him to be king. This is not the first time. And so this young guy goes in there and anoints a new king, this time Jehu. Uh, Well, you say, well, anybody could do that. A guy could walk in and say, you're the king, and how do we know that this is really meant for Jehu to be king? How do we know this? Well, I tell you what, no one in their right mind would would have taken it upon themselves to walk in this room in the army of Israel with them having a king in place and saying, hey, I'm anointing you in the name of God to be the king. It's not going to do that unless you're out of your mind, okay? Why take the risk? So in verse 6, the young prophet carries out his instructions that Elijah gave him to, to the letter. Look at verse 6. <clears throat> he arose and he went into the house and he poured the oil on his head and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I have anointed you king over the people of, of the Lord, even over Israel. Notice they're called the people of the Lord there. But then rather than run away immediately, he doesn't run away immediately. He sits, stands or stays around to define the mission <laughs> He throws some extra instructions in, in verses 7 to 10. Now, it could be that Elisha wanted him to say these things. Verse 3 doesn't record that. He just says, anoint the guy and run. Now, sometimes that happens in the Old Testament. Things are not all said up front, and then you see it fulfilled later on. Could be that happened. I don't know. Nevertheless, verses 7 to 10 lay out the mission of Jehu. Look at verse 7. Here's what you're going to do, Jehu. You're going to strike the house of Ahab, your master. Verse 7, very important verse in this chapter. You shall strike the house of your master, that I may avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord at the hand of Jezebel. For the whole house of Ahab shall perish, and I will cut off from Ahab every male person, both bond and free, in Israel. I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah. The dog shall eat Jezreel, Jezebel rather, in the territory of Jezreel, and none shall bury her even. Then he opened the door and fled. So he gives the the mission. He's going to destroy the dynasty of Ahab. He's going to kill them. Verse 8 is a quote from, is a prophecy from 1 Kings 21 that says, in fact, all this is from 1 Kings 21 and before that, 1 Kings 19, every male of the house of Israel, of the house of Ahab, is going to be killed. That's what he says. All the descendants are going to be killed. And just like God destroyed the evil dynasties, you probably don't remember when we talked about this, just like God destroyed the evil dynasties, of the house of Jeroboam and the house of Baasha, so will the evil dynasty of Ahab be destroyed as well. God's going to destroy it. And Jezebel, the wife of Ahab, is going to have a very, very unpleasant ending. That's what it says here. That is the mission of Jehu. This is his main mission in his life. He's going to be made king for one main purpose, so he can execute the house of Ahab. And he's going to do so with a vengeance, by the way. Did you see the reason behind these executions? Verse 7, it's that the Lord may avenge the blood of all his servants at the hand of Jezebel. What's he talking about when he says avenge the blood of all his servants? Well, if you remember back when we were in 1 Kings, 1 Kings 18, 4, it says Jezebel did what? She destroyed the prophets of the Lord, right? We don't know how many she destroyed, but she destroyed several prophets. In fact, Obadiah... Who, who was an employee, a God-fearing employee of Ahab, hid a hundred prophets in the cave. Remember that? He took care of them. But several others were killed, slaughtered, under the direction of Jezebel. She also threatened to kill Elijah the prophet in 1 Kings 19. She and her husband are both complicit in this. They're both murderers. Cold-blooded murderers is what they are. They saw to it that the Lord's prophets were killed. Let me ask you a question. Do you think they're going to escape the Lord's justice? They're not going to. That's why Jehu's appointed. So the young prophet delivers the message and flees the scene and gets out of there like he's told to do. One of the people who knows Jehu and sees all this going on, doesn't hear everything, he says, why did this mad fellow come to you? Well, what's going on here anyway? What happened? What, what, took, what took place? Now the word mad is referring to a person who's crazy, a raving madman. The same word is used in David, and of David in 1 Samuel 21. Remember when One of my favorite passages in 1 Samuel 21, when David pretends to be insane before the king of Philistia, and he lets saliva run down his beard, and he acts like he's crazy, scribbles on the door and all that, and the king of of, of Philistia makes this great statement when he sees this happening. He says, Do I lack madmen that you have brought this one to act the madman in my presence? It's the same word used here for this mad fellow. But this is what... Isn't this what the world says, though, three times in the Old Testament? This word mad is used to describe prophets, the prophets of God, not because they're babbling incoherently, but because of the content of their message. The message is insane, they say, what these people say. It's crazy. People of the world, they often think that about the message of God, don't they? We deliver the message of God's word, they think this is, there's something wrong with our intellect, they say. But this has always been the case, it still is today. Believers who carry the message of the word of God to people are considered mad oftentimes. Like there's something wrong with them. To them, the preaching of the cross is what? 1 Corinthians 1. It's pure foolishness, right? It's foolishness. To us who are being saved, it's the power of God. To them, it's foolishness. That's, what, that's how they perceive it. In Acts 26, when Paul was giving his testimony of his salvation, Festus, he's giving it before Festus and some rulers of that area, and Festus finally breaks in did to the message of Paul and says in a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad, he said. That's what the world thinks of the Word of God when it's presented by people whose lives have been changed by it. They think you're somewhat crazy. You know, you remember when we were here, I think the auditorium was facing that way. Yeah, it was. A couple of years back when Bill Nye, uh, the engineer guy, by the way, not science guy, he's not... His degree is in engineering, not in science, never has been in science. Bill, Bill, Bill Nye, the engineer guy, was debating Ken Ham of AI of Answers and Genesis. You remember that debate? And then uh, later on, uh, Ken Ham invited Bill Nye back when he opened the Creation Museum in Kentucky. He said, I think it was last July, he said, I want you to come back and I want to take you on a tour of the museum, a personal tour. Well, Bill Nye came back, and he did take him on the tour. Now, during that tour... Bill Nye, what Bill Nye said was a perfect illustration of what I'm talking about. He said this, the great Bill Nye, right? The science guy, engineer guy, whatever he is. Bill Nye said, it is not crazy to believe that we are descended from Martians. (laughs) It's not crazy to believe we are descended from Martians. That's not crazy. Uh, not, Not crazy at all. Of course that's not crazy. Why would we think that's crazy, right? That's what he says. But he went on to say this. But believing we may have come from Adam and Eve is a betrayal of our intellect. That betrays our intellect. In other words, it's not crazy to think that we came from some life form from Mars. That's not crazy. But it is crazy to think that we came from Adam and Eve, our first parents. That's crazy. That betrays our intellect. That's what he said. That's how the world thinks, though. Don't You see this backwards thinking constantly in all kinds of areas. I read it constantly, and I just sometimes want to shoot myself. When I read these things, don't be surprised if the world thinks that as a believer in your workplace or wherever, that you're a little bit crazy, something not right with you. So the young prophet here is referred to as being a mad fellow, somewhat out of his mind. What did this guy say to you anyway, Jehu? What's this all about? Jehu apparently trying to keep it all under wraps. You know, this is a coup, right? Keep this thing quiet. He says, you know the man in his talk. In other words, trying to pass it off. It's not a big deal. Don't worry about it. But the guy says, "No, you're lying. What really happened?" And he said, "Okay, guys, I've been anointed to be the king of Israel." Well, what would you think the reaction would that be? Would be to that, right? Well, in the Lord's providence, there's no hesitation from these guys. They say they get in line and they say, "Okay," and they accept it. They declare him king. The immediate group of people that are there, at least, nobody else. So we can correctly call him the executioner king because that's what he's going to be. But secondly, let's notice the executions. The executions, that's in the rest of the chapter. In fact, he's going to have several people executed. That's what his job is, right? He's an executioner. He's going to have several people taken out. These executions are going to start in chapter 9, verse 14. They're not going to stop until chapter 10, verse 28. It's going to go on for like two chapters here. It's going to be much bloodshed, but tonight we're only going to look at chapter 9. First of all, let's notice the first execution, the execution of King Joram. The execution of King Joram. Look at verse 14. So Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, conspired against Joram. Now Joram, the king, was with all Israel, was defending Ramoth-Gilead against Hazael, king of Aram. King Joram returned to Jezreel to be healed of the wounds which the Arameans had inflicted on him when he fought with Hazael, king of Aram. So Jehu said... If this is in your mind, then let no one escape or leave the city to go tell it in Jezreel. Then Jehu rode in a chariot and went to Jezreel, for Joram was lying there. Ahaziah, king of Judah, had come down to see Joram. Now the watchman was standing on the tower of Jezreel, and he saw the company of Jehu as he came, and he said, I see a company. And Joram said, Take a horseman and send it to meet them, and let him say, Is it peace? So a horseman went to meet him, and he said, Thus says the king, Is it peace? And Jehu says, What have you to do with peace? Turn behind me. And the watchman reported, The messenger came to them, but he didn't, he didn't return. Then he sent out a second horseman who came to them and said, this, Thus says the king, Is it peace? And Jehu answered, What have you to do with peace? Turn behind me. The watchman reported, He came even to them, and he did not return. And the driving is like the driving of Jehu, the son of Nimshi, for he drives furiously. Then Joram said, Get ready. And they made his chariot ready, Joram, Joram king of Israel, and Ahaziah king of Judah, went out, each in his chariot, and they went out to meet Jehu and found him in the property of Naboth, the Jezreelite. When Joram saw Jehu, he said, Is it peace, Jehu? And he answered, What peace, so long as the harlotries of your mother Jezebel and her witchcraft are so many. So Joram reined about and fled and said to Ahaziah, there is, This is treachery, O oh Ahaziah. And Jehu drew his bow with his full strength and shot Joram between his arms And the arrow went through his heart, and he sank in his chariot. Then Jehu said to Bidkar's officer, Take him up and cast him into the property of the field of Naboth, the Jezreelite. For I remember when you and I were riding together after Ahab his father, that the Lord laid this oracle against them. Here's the oracle. Surely I have seen yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of your son, says the Lord, and I will repay you in this property, says the Lord. Now then take and cast them into the property according to the word of the Lord. All right, what's happening in this scene is this. Joram and Israel are defending. They're in battle against Hazael, who's, who's one of the instruments of judgment against Israel. They're in battle against Hazael and Aram. Joram gets wounded in battle and goes back to his hometown of Jezreel to recover. Jehu was also in a raiment at Gilead. That's where he's anointed king. He decides, I'm going to go back and pursue Joram and Jezreel. At the end of verse 15, Jehu tells his friends who knew of his appointment, hey, Keep this, keep this quiet, this whole business of me being king. Don't tell anybody. I want it to be a surprise. Don't let the word leak out to Jezreel. Don't tell anybody. So he rides down to Jezreel in his chariot. Ahaziah, king of Judah, is checking, is there. Checking Joram due to his wounds. It's kind of like a hospital visit. Checking him make sure he's okay. Remember, Ahaziah is related to the house of Ahab by marriage. All right, He's the king of Judah, but he's related to the house of Ahab by marriage. So they're together. And this is like an alliance. Jehu is traveling with a company of people when the watchman in Jezreel, standing high on the tower, spots him from the distance, and they send, he sends out a messenger to meet Jehu, and he says, "Is it peace? Do you come peaceably?" The messenger asks. Jehu, not known for his diplomatic skills, says, "Get behind me and don't go back where you came from." Saying that, same thing happens to the second writer. By the way, verse 20 has always been a favorite of Bible readers. Let's read that again. The watchman reported, he comes, he came even to them and did not return. The driving is like the driving of Jehu, the son of Nimshi, for he drives furiously. I've always loved that verse. Or as the King James says, I think, he driveth furiously. Word translated furiously is from the the same root word as translated mad in verse 11. Jehu drives like a madman. And so his driving habits fit his character. Or maybe we should say his driving habits reveal his character. Show what kind of person he is. By the way, if Jehu were driving a car today, we'd accuse him of road rage. We'd, you don't want to be on the road when Jehu's out there, right? It's not an excuse for you to drive like a maniac on the streets of Tampa either, this verse. Don't use this verse. But Jehu had the right temperament to do, to do the job the Lord assigned him to. You know, isn't it amazing the Lord knows exactly who to get to do what job, right? He prepares people to do a certain job. He makes them a certain way to do a certain job. That's what he does. That's what he did here. So... Joram and Ahab find out, Ahaziah, rather, Joram and Ahaziah find out, this is Jehu. We know who this guy is. He's in our army. We know him. Let's go find out what's going on. Let's go out there and ask him what is going on. So they don't know he's been anointed king yet. They don't know that. And so they go out to meet him. Where do they find him? Where do they find him? In the property of Naboth the Jezreelite, right? He's in the the property of Naboth. Now, who's Naboth? That's the guy back in 1 Kings 21. You remember? ahab had a, his property next to, J, to, to to naboth and he said man naboth has this awesome vineyard i want that vineyard to be mine i want it he kept pouting and saying i want this vineyard i tried to get it but he won't give it to me he won't sell it to me nothing and his wife says Je- jezebel says hey you're the king just take it don't worry about it i'll take care of it for you how about that and so jezebel sets up a mock trial and she indicts. They have Naboth indicted on false charges, and they take him out and stone him to death. And then Ahab gets the vineyard. He's very happy because he has his vineyard, even though a person of the Lord, person that knew the Lord, died. And so when the Joram and Ahaziah go out to the to meet Jehu, where is he standing? On the field, the former vineyard of Naboth. That's where he's standing at. And Joram asks Jehu the same question that his messengers did. Do you come in peace, Jehu? He didn't know what was going on. And Jehu gives a very direct answer in verse 22. What peace, so long as the harlotries of your mother Jezebel and her witchcrafts are so many. This is the kind of guy you want, right? Straight talker and just puts it out there. This is what God is using him to do, to be this individual. There can never be any true peace in Israel as long as these godless people are in charge like Jezebel and Ahab. You can't have any true peace here. Now when it talks about her harlotries... It's, it means her, her unfaithfulness to God. She's been become an idolater. She's been unfaithful to God is what it's talking about there. Worshipping idols. Well, what we didn't know until this chapter is that she also participates in witchcraft. She's involved in witchcraft as well. You know, we shouldn't be surprised though, right? Idolatry begets other sins. Idolatry embraces other things like who knows what else she did. Nobody knows. People get involved in something. They're involved in something else probably as well. But Joram suddenly realizes Jehu has betrayed him, and he lets Ahaziah knows, this is treachery. This, this guy is, is, is committing treachery. He's deceived us. but before he has a chance to defend himself, Jehu gets the boat and, 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 and kills, he kills ah, uh, uh, he kills, uh, Ahaziah, kills Joram, rather, kills Joram with an arrow. and he orders his officers to throw Joram onto the property of Naboth. Now, according to verse 25, very interesting verse, Jehu says, I was present when I heard this judgment first, ordered, first uttered by Elijah. He said, I was there when I heard this, and he, and he kind of gives the quote, I think he does it from memory, verse 26, verse 26, Surely I have seen yesterday the blood of Naboth, blood of his sons. I'll repay him in this property. So he quotes that. I, I remember when this was uttered by Elijah, Jehu says. So Jehu was in on that. So Joram. The king, the son of Ahab, is first to be executed by Jehu. Remember, every male from Ahab, the house of Ahab, is to be executed. Here's the first one. Secondly, the execution of Ah Ahaziah. Look at verse 27. Execution of Ahaziah. Verses 27 and 29. When Ahaziah, king of Judah, saw this, saw him get killed, Joram, he fled by the way of the garden house, and Jehu pursued him and said, Shoot him, too, in the chariot. This guy doesn't mess around. So they shot him at the ascent of Gura, which is in Iblam, but he fled to Megiddo and died there. Then his servants carried him away in a chariot to Jerusalem and buried him in his grave with his fathers in the city of David. Now in the eleventh year of Joram, the son of Ahab, Ahaziah, became king over Judah. And so we have a second execution. Now remember, Ahaziah, king of Judah, he's related to the house of Ahab by marriage. Okay, that was his first mistake. And, uh, and then he's naturally, what naturally follows is, you know, you get married to the wrong person, what's going to happen? You're going to kind of walk in their way, right? He walks in the ways of the kings of Israel, 2 Kings chapter 8 says. And he's aligning himself with Joram, the son of Ahab. So he's guilty by association. What do you think Jay is going to do? He's going to take him out. And that's, a, that's what happens here. He, is, he kills him. But since he's not a direct descendant of Ahab, Ahaziah, he's a descendant of David, a Davidic king, has disobeyed God. What did guys say about that? I'm going to, any Davidic king who disobeys me, I'm going to I'm going to punish him individually. And he does. And he is killed here. But he's given a proper burial by his servants because he is a son of David. A, a, a king in David's line. And how sad that a Davidic king would follow the house of Israel. That's what happens, though. So he's killed. And then there's a third execution. That's the execution of Jezebel. Look at verse 30. When Jehu came to Jezreel. Jezebel heard of it, and she painted her eyes and adorned her head and looked out the window. As Jehu entered the gate, she said, Is it well, Zimri, your master's murderer? Then he lifted up his face to the window and he said, Who is on my side? Who? And two or three officials looked down at him. He said, Throw her down. So they threw her down. And some of her blood was sprinkled on the wall and on the horses, and he trampled her underfoot. When he came in, he ate and drank and said, See now to this cursed woman and bury her, for she is a king's daughter. They went to bury her, but they found nothing more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. Therefore they returned and told him, and he said, This is the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Elijah the Tishbite, saying, In the property of Jezreel the dog shall eat the flesh of Jezebel, and the corpse of Jezebel will be as dung on the face of the field and the property of Jezreel, so that they cannot even say, this is Jezebel, I won't even recognize her, he says. Now verse 30 has been used, unfortunately, by many preachers over the years, to keep you women from wearing makeup. Verse 30. When Jehu came to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it, and she painted her eyes and adorned her head and looked out the window. you ever heard a sermon on that? Many sermons have been preached on that. The reason that they say that you can't wear makeup and they actually preach these sermons is because uh, Jezebel wore makeup she's a wicked woman so Christian women should therefore not wear makeup and there are churches who will not allow women to wear makeup in them but I don't think I don't think that the intent of verse 30 is to put Revlon out of business or to put Maybelline out of business or cover girl yeah pretty good huh? I didn't actually know those facts until I asked somebody about them I didn't know that. Thank you, Sandy, for that information. <laughs> Nor is Jezebel trying to seduce Jehu as some have said. It's not happening either here. Not a good that's not working here, okay? So why did she paint her eyes? Why did she adorn her head? <laughs> In all probability, it's because she wanted to look like a queen and act the part of a queen, probably. That's probably why she did it. That's what many think. She has always acted with authority, usually behind closed doors. Within the safe confines of the palace, you remember how she goes, gives orders, kill the Lord's prophets. I'm going to kill, I'm going to kill Elijah. She's always inside the palace saying these things, right? But now, she is at the window, and she openly defies Jehu. She insults him. It's a great insult in verse 31 by calling him Zimri, your master's murderer. Verse 31, as Jehu entered the gate, she said, Is it well, Zimri, your master's murderer? Well, what did she say that for? Well, in 1 Kings 16, This a lot of these things go back to 1 Kings 16 to 21. There was a man named Zimri, if you remember when we went through that chapter. Zimri was a servant of Baasha the king at the time. And in fulfillment of prophecy, Zimri kills his master Baasha, kills that king. So in effect, Jezebel is saying, you're no better than Zimri was. You killed, just like Zimri killed Baasha the king, you killed uh, uh joram the king as well you're just a, a killer of kings is all you are that's all in first king 16 well jehu's unfazed by the comment. you think jehu cares about this he's told jehu doesn't care about any of this he's totally unfazed by anything right totally unfazed by the comment. he says who's on my side <laughs> a few attendants of jezebel come out and you know and they're and they are the word is eunuch actually the officials maybe over a harem even they they come out there and they they're like uh he says, throw her down. Okay, they know they can't resist this, you know, Jehu and his people and his army and all that, so they just toss her out. Probably, apparently, a rather high building they throw her down from. This is a really gruesome death. They don't hesitate to do this. They toss her out. She dies a horrible death. And then what does Jehu do? He tramples her with his, with his horse. This is the guy that knows how to carry out executions. I'm telling you, this guy knows how to do it. She dies a horrible death, horrible death. But all this killing... This made Jehu hungry. Look at verse 34. This is right after he tramples it underfoot with a horse. When he came, and he ate and drank. And this, guy, this is the guy you want to be the executioner if you have, if you need, need such an individual, right? And he decides to take a lunch break. I'm hungry, so he eats. And during the lunch break, he tells his men, you know, he says, "This woman is after all the daughter of a king. She's your royalty." She deserves a proper burial, but this is all sarcasm because he knows she's a cursed woman, cursed by God especially. And his men can't even go out to find, can't even find Jezebel, only parts of her, can't find all of her. You know, back in those days, uh, wild dogs roamed around, uh, scavenging whatever they could find to eat. They were hungry all the time, starving. And so they ate wherever they found whatever these creatures were and because they were hungry, and so they do so here as well. And so Jehu has executed his third victim. The prophecy concerning Jezebel has come true. Horrible death. Yes, it is horrible. But think of all the horrible things that Jezebel did. Now, don't let the stark reality of this passage let you forget what evil Jezebel did. Don't forget about You know, we have this thing in our country where we feel sad for the, we feel sad for the killer, right? Instead of the victims. I don't know why we do this all the time. Why do we always do this? What about the victims who have been killed and hurt and and all that. What about those people? And so, you don't forget what Jezebel did. 1 Kings 18.4, Jezebel destroyed the prophets of the Lord, it says. Destroyed them, several of them. 1 Kings 19.2, Jezebel threatens to kill Elijah the prophet. I'll kill you. 1 Kings 21, Jezebel arranges for the murder of Naboth and has him killed. 2 Kings 9.7, look there again with me, 2 Kings 9.7. You shall strike the house of Ahab your master that I may avenge the blood of my servants the prophets and the blood of all the servants of the Lord at the hand of Jezebel. Jezebel gets what's coming to her as the Lord has said. She gets his justice. That's what's happening here. So don't look upon Jehu as some renegade running around like a serial killer trying to kill people in government. That's not what he's doing here. The Lord has appointed him to be his executioner. You know, to close out here do you know the the uh, one of the main functions the bible teaches one of the main functions of government is to see to it that criminals are prosecuted Do you know the bible teaches this the time is to fit the crime and this is in this nation the covenant nation of israel these people were breakers of the laws of god and of men both were true and god uses appointed king to carry out justice that's what the government should be doing by the way so the bible teaches whether they're criminals or government officials or whether they are in the private sector, the government is to take care of law and order. Look at, Turn with me as we close to Romans chapter 13. Romans 13, 1 to 5. Romans 13. <clears throat> says, Every person is to be in, subject, in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. God established government. He's the one that did it. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed what? The ordinance of God. Resisting authority, opposing God. Same thing. Those who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause. What are they driving out here? Verse 3. Rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it says in verse 4, For it is a minister of God, government, referring to, actually this is referring to law enforcement, law enforcement arm of government, government, it is a minister of God to you for good. You ever thought of law enforcement slash government as a minister of God? For good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. You break the law. You do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. What do you do with the sword back in those days? You kill people, right? What do you do with a gun if you're in law enforcement? Now, you kill people, or you threaten to kill people, or it's, it's a way to get people to obey, right? It says, it does not bear the sword for nothing. It's the minister of God, an avenger. The government, law enforcement, is an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. That's their job. That's what they're supposed to do. Therefore, it's necessary to be in subjection, not only for, because of the wrath, but also for conscience' sake. What Jehu did is what a government is supposed to do. Or, you know, maybe not the same methods. His methods were crude and more like the wild, wild west system of justice. But it got the job done, right? Fulfilled prophecy. You know, I bet if Jehu were alive today and he were in a top position in law enforcement in America, crime would be a lot less, would you think, maybe? You know, uh, Chicago could greatly benefit from Jehu, by the way, because last year uh, the uh, combined... The combined murders of New York and Los Angeles did not surpass the total murders of Chicago alone. That's sad. When, you, when you, I keep up with these kind of things. That's sad uh, when that happens, right? They could benefit from a Jehu these days. Romans 13.4 refers to the law enforcement arm of government by the phrase minister of God. That word is translated deacon elsewhere. Same word for deacon, minister, right there. Deacon is one who serves the church, servants of God, servants of the church. Law enforcement is a servant of God and society. Have you ever thought of them like that? Servant of God and society. They are, without law enforcement, we'd have utter and complete and total what? Disaster and chaos on our hands, right? Nothing would be, go right. And, and yet in our country, law enforcement people are being ambushed. That's a, a sad state of affairs. Criminals don't like law enforcement. Why? Well, the verse tells us they're an, because they're an avenger of wrath against the one who practices evil. If you're practicing evil, you don't want anybody stopping your evil, right? People love evil, right? Their men love darkness rather than light. Their deeds are evil. They love evil. They practice. They love practicing evil. They love making money doing evil. So they don't like it when their evil is shut down. That's what the government is supposed to do. First Peter 2.14 says, Government is for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. This is the will of God for government according to the word of God. You say, well, the system is flawed. Yeah, every system of man is flawed. doesn't matter what the system is. You have sinners, and think about this. You have sinners in charge of government who themselves govern sinners, right? It's just one big circle here. You have sinners committing crimes, and you have, and the whole business of law enforcement is very complicated. So yeah, you have flawed systems everywhere, but thank God that he's established some kind of law and order in our world, or we'd have lawlessness and disorder every, on every hand. Do you see how wise it is of God to do this? For every country to have law and order of some kind? Do you see how the wisdom of God in all this? Because God knows a society left to itself will destroy itself. What's going to happen? Now, you may think Jehu is cruel, but Jehu carried out justice against evildoers just like the Lord wanted him to do. He did it. His word was fulfilled. The Lord will get his justice sooner or later. That is what the scriptures teach. Now, we're going to stop there tonight. We'll pick it up here next week in chapter 10 where we can see more executions of Jehu. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word again tonight. Pray that you'll give us wisdom to uh, live in such a way that we realize the wisdom of your word, to understand why you do things the way you do, Lord, knowing that we're in a sinful world, we're all sinners, <clears throat> we're all do th- we all flawed in many ways. We pray that as, as believers we would be law keepers and that we would be those who set the example of society, Lord, and that we would be those who are light and salt in this world. Praise in Christ's name. Amen.